James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Good morning. It is good to be with you. Um, as we dive into our last Sunday teaching on kind of discerning God's will and God's voice, it's probably appropriate that I stop and pray for us. As I was seeing all of you beautiful people coming in, I am reminded that we have handfuls of people that are struggling with sickness, um, uh, with medical issues that are pretty pressing, and so uh, I want to I want to pray for you right now, and um, ask for God's presence and healing to be known. So, Lord, we come to you and we ask that you would wake us up to your presence. We come and ask today that you would wake us up to your power. And we pray for a level of hope that is not from us or the simple encouragement of others, but a level of hope that is deeply tied to you. It's tied to your healing power, but it is also tied to your resurrection. So today as we receive words from your holy scripture we want more than that we also want your holy presence to manifest itself in a way that radically shakes us that heals us that makes us new both in body and spirit we love you lord and it's in your name that we pray these things and all his people said amen the biggest difference between people who flourish in life, those who have great relationships and those who do not, is not the stuff that we usually get preoccupied with. Usually we get preoccupied with money being the difference maker or health or talent or good looks or IQ. But for the most part, at least most times, the thing that differentiates those who flourish from those who don't is wisdom. It's the ability to make really wise, good decisions in whatever context we find ourselves in. Now, if you're an average person, according to one study that I read this past week, you will make about 70 conscious decisions today. We, a lot of what we do is based on intuition or, or habit, but today and tomorrow and the next day, you will make 70 intentional conscious decisions. That means that over the year's time, you will make somewhere around 25,500 decisions. It means over a span of 70 years of a life, you will make about 1,788,500 decisions. You put all that together and it is basically your life. That's why Albert Camus said life is the sum of all your choices. It's who you are. It's, it's what you build. Which is, I read that study was a bit sobering because there's so many decisions which means it's really easy to make a bad one. Really easy to make a bad one. And Amanda, in my first few years of marriage... 
we rented out a, a townhouse. It was a two-bedroom, two-story, full-basement townhouse. It was rent-stabilized at $530 a month. That's good, right? 530 I didn't think so. In fact, I remember the moment that I got a, a letter in the mail from management that said your monthly rent was going to increase by $35 because of some stuff we're going to do with your windows. And I sat there in my zealous youth and went, no, you are not. I, will, I looked at a man, I was like, we will not pay any more than we are currently paying. We are throwing money away on this rental. And I looked at her and I remember going, we should buy our first home. Forget this. We're buying our first home. And after a, a long, extensive day and a half search, we put an offer down and bought our first home. It sounds like a good decision so far, right? I remember the first season change. It got cold out. Walked into our new home and started to see above every door and window cracks in the walls that began to surface. I'm not an architect, but I knew this was not a good thing. And so we called a specialist out who then went and spent some minutes in our crawl space and came out a few minutes later into the living room and said, Mr. Saba, I said, yes, he goes, you have some foundation problems. Like, again, I don't know what that all means, but it's probably not good. He said, your house, it's, it's sinking. I'm like, What? My house is sinking? He's like, yeah, it's sinking. Apparently, we had bought a place that was at the lowest point of, elev uh, of, of elevation in that surrounding area, which meant that through the years, as torrential downpours happened, all the water ran directly underneath our crawl space, which was why the ground was so soft, and now my home, my first home, was sinking. It would be weeks later that we enlisted my friend Carl. He was an older gentleman who said he had, the, he had the fix for our sinking home. It would be something he called a French drain. I remember it specifically. He said, we just need to dig a little trench from the crawl space out to the backyard so that the water that collects there will flow to the backyard and away from the house. I said, great. I know he would do it for a discounted price, and so he came over. But the city we lived in was called Oak Park. It was called Oak Park because there was a lot of big oak trees. With a lot of big oak trees come a lot of big oak roots underneath the ground. And over the next few months, Mr. Carl found out that he had bitten off a little bit more than he could chew. And I remember the day that I walked into my backyard, and it wasn't a little trench. It was a seven-foot deep canyon that my man had dug in my new backyard. Standing there looking at my house that is apparently sinking... With now a canyon in my backyard going, this cannot get any worse, but it did. I remember the party we had weeks later. I remember my friend walking out of the bathroom saying, Dan, I'm really sorry, but the toilet stopped up. And I thought to myself, that's fine. I can't fix foundational stuff. I can't fix the canyon that's in my backyard and the bobcat that's sitting there digging up stuff. But I can, I can use a plunger. I know how to do this, and so I grabbed the plunger, and I went and I sat down on the bathtub right next to the toilet, and I thrust down, but when I thrust down, I felt something hit the back of my neck. So I look up to see if the ceiling's leaking, but there's nothing. I thrust down again, and again, I feel something. So the third time, I thrust down, and as I thrust down, water shoots up from my bathtub's drain. I'm like, what is going on? I'm like, this is not good. The whole main had backed up. I had spaghetti and sushi coming out of my bathtub drain. I'm looking out my back window, staring at a bobcat that had been there for months with a seven-foot deep canyon. I'm sitting in my house that's sinking with sushi and spaghetti coming out of the drain going, Dad, all of that from one bad decision. Only 1,788,499 to go.
And some of us have done this Christian thing for a while, and so intuitively and intentionally, or intentionally, we ask the question daily, God, what's your will for this decision I need to make? At my workplace or in my family, whether or not I date this person, well, what's your will? There's others in here who don't ask for God's guidance when decisions come up because your image or picture of God is not of Jesus. Instead, it's of some distant deity or some demanding judge or some awful cop that's waiting to catch you messing up. So why would you? And there's a third group of people in here today who just, you just don't know how. How do I hear God's will? How do I discern what he wants when it comes to work or that relationship or how I care or whether I care primarily for my parent in this season? How do I do it? And so we get to James 1. This is a book in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, and we find that the first church is at a bit of a crossroads where they're trying to figure out for the first time in its early life how we are to discern the will of God with all the trials that we face. We've seen Jesus, our teacher and rabbi, alive. Now we've seen him killed and crucified. We've seen him raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit has now been deposited into those who believe in him. But now the church is sitting going, we don't have him fleshly in front of us. So how are we to discern the will in this very pivotal moment? And so James writes a letter to the church. And in it, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives you generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, James, from what we know or suspect to know, James is the little brother of who? Jesus. Throughout the scripture we find that little brother is highly doubtful of his brother Jesus' messianic claims. Doesn't believe him. But now he's on the back end of this scene. And he has seen his brother not only killed, but he's seen his brother risen from the dead. And so now as the first church is trying to figure out how to follow the way and the will of Jesus without the human Jesus standing right before them... James, little brother, with this authority and credibility, says, I know these are trying times, right? And the church says, yeah. And I know you're not always sure what to do, right? And the church says, yes. And James responds, so I need you to pray. Here's what you do, you pray. And he doesn't say pray for success. He doesn't say pray for comfort or safety. He doesn't say pray for relational satisfaction. He doesn't say pray for the next promotion. He doesn't even say pray to know what's right or wrong. That's not what he says to pray for. He says you need to pray for wisdom. I understand, church, you need God's will. But God's will for your life might just be God's wisdom for your life. We all want to know the will of God, but what James is writing here to the church is God's will for your life is God's wisdom for your life. You pray for that. You pray for wisdom. And so I just briefly want to talk about why we should want spiritual wisdom, how we get spiritual wisdom, and last, the origin of it, where it comes from. And so first, why we should want it. Why should we want this spiritual wisdom that James talks about when we're thinking through what to do now in our office? 
or what to do now with that woman that lives next door that has just been nasty. James begins and he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously. So why do we need God's wisdom? Why should I ask the way that James suggests? Well, I was reminded yesterday, I I sat down to work, I cleared off my desk, got myself a cup of coffee, I, I prayed a bit, I refocused my thoughts, I quieted my mind, and as I opened up my laptop and it automatically turned on, right then and there I hear one of my children shriek. Well, shrieking. A hysteria level of shrieking. Like somebody better have been cutting off their limbs shrieking. And this person comes in and they go, Dad, Dad. I'm like, what? Dad, they won't let me into the room. I'm like, calm down. I don't know if your books do what my books do or if my your laptops do what my laptops do, but every time I'm in a moment of quiet and I open up one of those things, it is at that point in time that a child shrieks or asks a question. Does Dad, can I get a snack? Dad, Dad, can you ask Judah to get off my head? Like, Dad, like question after question, right at the moment that I just want peace. And so I look at this little person yesterday as they are shrieking, and I say, will you? I asked a question. I asked a question. Will, I love you, will you leave me alone? <laughs> and I ask I ask because I have need. That's when we ask. We ask because we don't have the thing that we're asking for. When I ask for a cup of coffee, it's because I need some caffeine. When I ask a waiter for a menu, it's because I need what? Food. When I ask my child to leave the room, it's because I want to stay out of prison. Like when, you know, like we, we, our asking assumes need. Want you to hear that? Our asking assumes need. Which means that when James writes, he is letting us know you are in need of godly wisdom. Why? Because you actually don't have it. You got IQ, that's great, but it's not spiritual wisdom. You have emotional intelligence, which can be better than IQ, that's great, but it's not spiritual wisdom. You have intuition, which is wonderful, but it's not spiritual wisdom. You have the scientific method, which is great, but it is not spiritual wisdom. You need to ask for spiritual wisdom because you are a spiritual being living in a spiritual world in need of a wisdom that is applicable to that spiritual context. And he says you need godly wisdom, spiritual wisdom from God because you are not God. You've never been God, nor will you ever be God. Ask because you don't have it. It's one of the reasons why this is so important. But secondly, spiritual wisdom and asking for it thrusts us into relational and vulnerable conversation with the creator of the world. When I ask for something that I cannot get myself, I put myself in a vulnerable position because the one in power, the one with the resources, could look at me and say, no. That's vulnerability. And yet throughout the story of God, we find that vulnerability is always the ramp for true relationship to actually occur. If you want a relationship with God and yet you are unable to be honest about where you currently are, good luck. But one of the theological paradigms that we have here that we always talk about is God loves you so much that God will only meet you where you really are. And this includes my lack and your lack of spiritual godly wisdom. 
And so we put ourselves in this vulnerable position where we ask for that which we do not have. But thirdly, it keeps us in a dependent posture, which is actually what we were created for. It's what we were created to thrive within. If you're anything like me, you want to know how all this is going to work out. I want to know if this church is going to be flourishing in the next year. I want to know if we're going to be able to pay our bills next month. I want to know if my kids are going to take every opportunity they have for educational success. I want to know the outcomes of things. I want to know if, if my, my family is healed of those things that they're struggling with medically and physically. I want, to, I want to know. But the problem is you look at the story of Genesis, our book of origins, and it seems that we were created to not know, at least fully. If you know the story of Genesis, there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and God says, no, 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 you're actually not supposed to know because it keeps you in a dependent position as a kid of a king. That's where you're meant to thrive. Does anybody in here actually feel like, like they thrive when you don't know what you want to know? Ah. But it's what we're created for. We are created to thrive in the unknown because it forces us into a place of dependency. There's great sources of wisdom out there. There are colleagues and parents and books and theologians, and they, they are all really, really good, but they are not sufficient. We need godly wisdom. We need godly wisdom. I want to know if I'm going to live the rest of my life in New York City. I, I know some of you want to know, am I here in this next season? Or what apartment am I going to get? Or is my mom going to be okay? I, I get that you want to understand God's will and all of that stuff. But God's will for your life is God's wisdom for your life. That's why we need it. How do we get it? James continues and says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Now we've already mentioned that we must ask, but James is more precise. He doesn't just say ask. He says, ask who? He says, ask God, which I think is simple and straightforward as this is. It's, it's very intentional. This past week we were on vacation, but I knew I was preaching today, and so there were moments throughout my week where I started to think through, well, what am I going to speak on on Sunday? What passage am I going to choose? Which angle am I going to, to approach it from? And As I started my sermon, my sermon preparation on, on asking God for wisdom with decision-making and direction, right, because that's what I'm speaking on, my first go-to was to look up some of my favorite commentators to see what they thought I should speak about. I then went online and found a few different sermons on how we know the will of God and decide whether or not I would glean from those sermons that I heard that were all about asking God for direction. I then talked with Amanda, who is very wise. She's wise beyond her years, high IQ, way higher than mine, has skipped a few grades. She just shook her head, yes and amen. She repeated the song. <laughs> I then texted Matthew, Dr. Hoskinson, who has multiple degrees, to see what he's been speaking on. I then took out a, a piece of paper the other day and I started writing down my thoughts to see if I had any good answers for what angle I needed to take on how to teach you about going and asking God for wisdom as to what to do. You seeing, you seeing what's going on here? This is why James goes, ask God. Our default as people is to have conversations with others, to have conversations with ourselves, to have conversations with the internet. Most of us would throw out a question about uh, what we should do to, to our Facebook crowd prior to asking God, what do you want me to do here? So James says, ask God. 
But secondly, he says, ask God and ask him in faith. Ask him in belief. Now, if you're like me, I get a little scared of the word faith because often I feel like I don't have enough. And there's a bunch of bad theology out there that suggests you won't get what you want, you won't be healed, you won't be delivered, you won't get paid if you do not have a a deeper level of faith. In fact, a ton of that bad theology comes from this passage. So, So let me clarify here. James doesn't say if you have faith or belief, you'll get that job. James doesn't say if if you believe, you'll get that money. He doesn't say if you believe, you'll be saved. James says if you believe, you will get what? Wisdom. You see how frustrating this is? Because we all want it to be about the end product. And Jesus, in the way of Jesus, is almost always about the process. James says, ask God for wisdom, and if you believe, well, believe what? Remember who this is actually coming from. This is the little brother who continued to doubt while Jesus was alive and teaching. If anyone can talk about doubt in a credible way, it is James, the little brother of Jesus. Could you imagine if your sibling came up to you and started making messianic claims? Like the guy that you saw grow up and wearing diapers? Like the guy who brought grades home that were less than an A started going, I think I may be the way and the truth and the life. You'd be like, yeah, bud. Sure. (laughs) If anybody has the right to talk about doubt, it's this one. But here's James going, believe in my brother and who he says he is. This isn't about a level of faith. This is about a very specific object that you place your faith in. Will you believe that you are asking God who is Jesus? See, it's it's not hard to believe that that there is an intelligent designer behind all things. It's not. I mean, you spend some years reading, studying, looking into science. It's not hard to come to that conclusion that there's some intelligent being behind things. It's not hard to believe at the end of the day that there might be life after death. But James actually gives us a human to deal with. A very specific person. Do you believe that James' big brother Jesus is the full revelation of God when you are asking for that wisdom? Do you believe that he is God incarnate and has come to unleash the kingdom of God in this world? James says, if you believe this, you will ask and he will give. Why? Because as we see, Jesus is willing to give everything and anything to bring us close to him. This is why it's so important that your belief is in Jesus because Jesus is very different than a bunch of other deities and a bunch of other worldviews. Jesus proves again and again that he is willing to give everything and anything, including his very own life, to bring you close to him. But if you doubt that this is what God is like, James says you will continue to find your wisdom from other consultants. And it'll toss you around. See, when I, when I doubt that Jesus will give me everything and anything to bring me close, when I start to go, oh, maybe God is more distant than Jesus actually says. Or maybe God is more conditional than Jesus actually shows. Or maybe God waits for me to clean up before he draws close. When I, when I start to doubt, I start to look to other places. 
blown and tossed as I move from one consultant to another. I'll go looking for perfect spiritual godly wisdom from colleagues and then bosses and then spouses and self-help books. All who are not God and who will bat 600 at best. It's, it's very interesting that James uses imagery of wind and waves. Because there's another student of Jesus that he was well acquainted with. Peter. The one who sees Jesus walking on water coming close to him. Who goes, Jesus, just, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And steps out of the boat and begins to walk on the water towards Jesus until he goes... And starts looking for advice from other places, including the waves and wind beneath him. God's will for your life is God's wisdom for your life. And so we ask God, who is Jesus, and we ask in belief of who Jesus says he is. Now last, where do we get it from? And throughout the the scripture, wisdom is often personified. So in Proverbs 8, it, it says, I wisdom... Right? It's personified. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. This is wisdom speaking. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight. I have power. By me, kings reign and rulers issues decrees that are just. By me, princes govern and nobles all who rule on the earth. I love those, wisdom says, who love me and those who seek me and find me. With me are riches and honor, enjoying wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasures full. Now listen to this though and you'll see it back here. The general personification of wisdom all of a sudden starts to get a specific name in Proverbs 8. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. Where there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. Keeps going. You just start leaning in a little bit. When when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Who is this starting to sound like? Jesus. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, watching at my doorway. For those who find me find life. Wisdom personified is Jesus. He he is wisdom. It's why Paul would later write, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Which is why I just end with this part of the passage, which is very important for me. 
You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Without finding fault. One of, my, one of my hardest things when it comes to parenting is watching my young children receive money from their extended family because they just don't know what to do with it yet. And so they'll get, you know, $40, $50 from a grandparent. You know, like this kid's seven. Within five days, they're going to go purchase 30 bags of Doritos. Thank you very much. <laughs> I want to give my young kids money because they don't know what to do with it. They misuse it. Church, I've made really bad decisions over my life. I've made decisions that have have hurt my family. I've made decisions that have hurt myself. I've made decisions that have hurt colleagues. The fact that God wants to give me his wisdom, I feel like going, God, I'm just going to go buy a bunch of bags of Doritos. You don't need to give me this. But he does. And he does it without finding fault in me. He doesn't go, here's some wisdom. Don't screw it up like you did last time. And my question has always been, how? But if Jesus is wisdom, here's what you got. You got the wisdom of Rome who says, we must conquer and diminish any influence that might rebel against the empire, mainly that guy, Jesus. We got the wisdom of the Jewish high priest who say, there's no way this man can be what he claims to be. We need to do something with him. He's blasphemous. We have the wisdom of the world that says we should strive for for control and, and control our own destiny at any cost. And all of this worldly wisdom combined is used to kill the one who is wisdom. Worldly wisdom kills Godly wisdom. But godly wisdom doesn't stay dead. He loves you and I so much that he will let foolishness and folly do its worst to him and then defeat the grave so that we would have complete access without fault to godly wisdom, mainly Jesus himself. When you understand that, When that captures your heart, you will stand in the midst of all of the decisions you have to make, realizing that you can go to this consultant or this consultant, but you will choose again and again the one who loves you and who has defeated death for you so that you might be close to him, a kid of the king, with his wisdom. And so, church, let's end this way before we receive communion. On your program, you you have a little space that says, I need wisdom right now for this. If you don't have it, don't worry about it because it's literally one sentence and we can do this, church. I need wisdom for this. What is that right now? I want you to to think through that. What is that one thing right now? Is it a relationship? Is it something at work? Is it about your next apartment? Is it about how to care for your mother who's in the last season of her life? What is it? And now in just a moment of silence... I want you to just 
ask in belief that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he says he has done. I want you to ask. Ask. 